Welcome to the Cybersecurity Weekly Podcast. I'm Jane Lowe, podcasting from Singapore today. And joining us today uh, from United Kingdom, we have Dr. PJ Blount, who is the lecturer in law in the School of Law and Politics at Cardiff University in Wales in UK. And he will be sharing with us his insights on space law and cybersecurity. So thank you, Dr. Blount, for joining us in the podcast today. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. So, um, Dr. Blount, you know, when we talk about space law, I believe we are referring primarily to the Outer Space Treaty of um, the 1960s. And before we go into the details to look at space law in the context of today's security landscape, can you perhaps tell us a bit about the historical and political context um, underpinning that treaty? Because uh, it was developed uh, back then, 50, 60 years ago, when I understand that, you know, space race was the popular narrative during that so-called space age era. Certainly. So I think that when we think about the historical context of the treaty, um, we really have to kind of think about how uh, the expansion into space affected what was going on in society. So in 1957, Sputnik goes up. And one of the things that we learn from Sputnik um, is, you know, suddenly the Soviet Union had the ability to launch an item into space, which meant that they essentially had the ability to launch a nuclear weapon into space. So this is the dawn, not just of space exploration, exploration, but also of intercontinental ballistic missiles. Um, Interestingly, at the time, the Soviets had a really good throw weight. They had a large launch vehicle, but they also had a very large nuclear weapon. Um, The United States had a small weapon, but but the United States did not have uh, a good throw weight. So there was sort of a moment where these two states sort of began to recognize that maybe pushing the Cold War paradigm of nuclear armament into space was not such a good idea. And so from there, in the early 60s, there began to be discussions about legal principles that will govern outer space. And we see a a 1963 General Assembly resolution that is a declaration of legal principles. The nine or ten principles that you find in that resolution serve as a foundation for the Outer Space Treaty, which was formed in 1967. Um, so it was a, a sort of interesting things about it. it was it was actually negotiated very quickly, which shows that there was you know broad support amongst states, but also amongst these two superpowers. So it was negotiated quickly and it was signed quickly. Um, And it is, in my opinion, it's a security treaty. It's about keeping states from going into conflict in space. And those are the the core principles that we find in it um, are very much about keeping states talking to each other and keeping states cooperating with each other in order to make sure that space is safe and secure. The concept of security back then, I guess, is very different from security. When we talk about security nowadays, uh, a big component of it is uh, very much uh, cyber security, especially when we are talking about, you know, network changing from land-based communication to satellites for moving data and more satellite circling as launches become cheaper and satellites playing increasingly an integral role in our lives, you know, from not just communication, but to remote sensing, early warning systems, navigation, you name it, right? So the concept of security today, um, cybersecurity is a big component of that. So I guess uh, the immediate question then is, you know, to what extent is the space treaty catching up with these developments. Yeah, so I mean, you're absolutely right. Our understanding of security has changed dramatically. And I would say that the Outer Space Treaty is concerned with this idea of 
international peace and security, which is a, a phrase that comes from the UN Charter, um, which is very much about the idea of keeping states from going into armed conflict with each other. Um, but we've seen over the course of time since then this evolution in security, and it's not just connected to cybersecurity, it's just the idea of national security, of homeland security, um, the idea of human security, that I as an individual have rights to security, um, has really led us to rethink our understanding of security. Um, and then cybersecurity obviously plays into that and adds a new layer of complexity as it sort of affects everything, right? And so the issue of the, the Outer Space Treaty keeping up with it is interesting, right? Um, the Outer Space Treaty itself, and there is criticism out there of the Outer Space Treaty as being, you know, behind the times, right? It was written in the 60s and technology has changed dramatically since then. How are we still using this treaty? You know, one of the things that we can observe with the Outer Space Treaty is that it doesn't really talk about technology. It mentions mm -hmm. human spaceflight. Um, it mentions space launch activities, but it never talks about remote sensing, which was a technology that existed at the time of the treaty. It doesn't talk about telecommunications, which was a technology that existed at the time. So the treaty itself is written in such a way that, that I often refer to it as, as technologically neutral, right? Mm -hmm. It is intended to apply to all sorts of things. And so it's not that technology has outpaced the treaty. The treaty was designed to be able to embrace new technology. At the same time, the complexities that cyber bring to this challenge not just the Outer Space Treaty, but international law in general. Um, and this has a lot to do with just the way that cyber functions. It doesn't fit within the paradigms of international law that we've developed up until this point. Mm -hmm. But since the 1967, I believe, was the year that you mentioned that the Outer Space Treaty was um, uh, negotiated. Since then, um, I understand that 30 states today has specific national law that regulates the activities of private companies and states in outer space. So it seems that at a national level, at least, there's an attempt to catch up with technologies. So there, there are a number of states that have domestic laws, and, and this is in line with the, the Outer Space Treaty. It was never intended to regulate space holistically. So um, Article 6 of the Outer Space Treaty requires states to authorize and continually supervise the space activities that originate in that country. Um, and to this end, states have adopted laws. This is a, mm -hmm. a very active area for states. Um, and there are differences in the way that states do this. Um, so if you look at the system in the United States, um, um, it is a very fragmented system and that different agencies are regulating different aspects of space activities. Other states have taken a route where they're going to identify a single regulator and that single regulator will have the ability to regulate any space activity that comes up. Other states have written their laws very specifically to the activities that they think are going to be important to that state. So there's a lot of leeway that states get from the Outer Space Treaty to very much engage with the law and regulation concerning their space activities and to tailor that law and uh, regulation to their specific needs. To what extent do these developments address the cybersecurity component? I know so, it's a very broad topic. <laughs> Welcome to my research. I would say that this has been an area that is somewhat lagging. I've been thinking about this a, a lot. And so we often, as lawyers, right, thinking from a legal perspective, we look at the law and we say there's a gap there, right? This law mm -hmm. doesn't talk about cybersecurity. Therefore, we now need law and regulation to step in and, and actually talk about cybersecurity. Um, and I don't know that this is necessarily the case, right? 
the idea that we should have space law that is talking about cybersecurity might actually inhibit the space industry. And this is because cybersecurity law in general can't be very specific, right? If I demand that we're going to use um, AES encryption on a command and control links, and then two weeks later that is broken, well, now the operator has a question, right? Do I comply with the law or do I ensure that my asset is secure? So law and regulation isn't usually the answer to all of our cybersecurity problems. At the same time, you know, as we know, cybersecurity being a risk management process, this is something that has legal implications. And so, for instance, where we probably are going to see more action is in this licensing and authorization process, right? Um, if I'm going want to launch a space asset and it's going to be a telecommunications asset that might be carrying sensitive data, probably my national regulator is going to want to see my cybersecurity plan, my risk management planning as part of that authorization process. If there is an incident later on and there's a dispute that arises from it, that information security plan that I have is going to become part of the evidence in that dispute. So law and regulation, if you go out there and you look at the national laws, you will find a handful of very small examples, but in general does not give us great detail on how space assets should be cybersecure. But that does play out still the way it does in any other cybersecurity realm at the organizational level um, where that organization is attempting to manage its own risk. Mm-hmm. Yes, I want to touch on uh, space sector as a critical infrastructure uh, player. But uh, before we go into that, so far what we have been talking about focus on activities in the outer space, right? But if we talk about space sector in general, it's not just outer space, but it's also the ground-based assets. So for example, if we look at the recent um, cyber incidents in the current uh, Ukraine conflict, uh, we hear that you know users were cut off from Vysat's uh, satellite broadband services because the terminal management system was hacked. And at the same time, Elon Musk and Starlink also experiencing signal jamming right in the user terminals in Ukraine. And these are attacks on the ground segment of the space infrastructure. And this is not the first time that we have malicious activities targeting the ground segment. We hear about, you know, BBC jamming of the coverage of the Iranian uh, elections, or or even the um, illegal hijacking of U.S. military satellite transponders in Brazil. So these are some of the uh, malicious activities that we hear a lot about even before the recent uh, Ukraine conflict. So when it comes to such attacks, you know, there's already regulations or laws. For example, in Singapore, the computer misuse law. We have also in Singapore anti-jamming laws. So when we talk about space law and cybersecurity, to what extent should the framework reference malicious ground-based activities? So ground-based activities are certainly part of your space activity and are licensable as such, right? So if you um, are seeking a license to operate a satellite in a given jurisdiction, you are probably going to need to submit information on your ground station. Um, But these ground stations are going to be sort of wrapped up in sort of a dual area, right? So there will be law that applies via the auspices of this being connected to a space activity, but there's also going to be sort of this general area of cyber 
cybersecurity law that also applies to these. And and I think this is proper, right? I mean, if we're thinking about this from a, an attacker perspective, right, attacking the ground station is much more efficient and you are much more likely to get the outcomes that you want by attacking the ground station rather than trying to attack the satellite. There's still sort of a high burden on attacking the satellite just simply mm-hmm. because of the way That's that right. orbital dynamics work. And so the ground station is always going to be target number one. I mean, I'm mm-hmm. not saying that there aren't hackers or attackers that are out there looking at trying to get directly into the satellite. But um, if you're, you know, if you want to do efficiency, then then you're going to go for the ground station. That's right. So, exactly. Yeah. So ground stations, I mean, they, they do need to be covered by this law. And you would be a foolish operator if you weren't applying full um, cybersecurity or information security plan to your ground station. Yes, yeah. So the other thing that I want to look back to is uh, the earlier points I uh, mentioned about critical infrastructure. And this is a recent uh, development in the U.S. as uh, the space sector is not currently, as I, as I understand, one of the 16 critical infrastructure sectors designated by the Presidential Policy Directive. So it seems... Um, you know, quite logical and necessary that the space industry should be considered as uh, part of the critical infrastructure. So from that perspective, to what uh, extent do cybersecurity laws and regulations in other critical infrastructure, uh, to what extent can they be applicable for the space sector? I I actually kind of take a a skeptical view of this. Um, in, in In the sense that I think it's very difficult to sort of wave one's hand at space and say, well, that's critical infrastructure because mm. it really depends on the asset that we're talking about, right? Universities are putting CubeSats in space that are running small computers and, you know, giving students great educational perspective, but that's certainly not critical infrastructure. So when we think about the idea there's critical infrastructure in space, and there is certainly critical infrastructure in space, um, mm-hmm. just in, not in a legal definition, but in a general idea, I do think we need to be very careful about recognizing what constitutes critical infrastructure and what doesn't. Because one of the things that could happen if we just say space is critical infrastructure, then we're actually going to burden a lot of industry players and some you know, non-profit or university players that are not engaged in those types of activities. Now, I will say that to the extent that we can identify a space asset and say that this space asset is performing a function that fits within critical infrastructure, um, then that space asset then needs those types of protections. Now, what we usually see, again, from cybersecurity law that kind of identifies critical infrastructure is not so much that what that infrastructure needs to be doing to be cybersecure, but rather just a broad statement that this is critical infrastructure, so we have to have heightened protections on it, right? It changes the way Way that you do risk management, and that is absolutely proper for a lot of satellites. I, I think that geosynchronous orbit mm-hmm. communication satellites is certainly right. um, most of them probably fit into this lane. But I find it very problematic when we just say space is critical infrastructure mm-hmm. because I don't I don't think that's true of every asset that's up there. Right. So basically, we just need a more detailed definition around what we mean by space as a critical infrastructure. 
Yeah, I mean, I, you know, we talked earlier about this idea that technology has changed. And I think that right now we're seeing a massive sort of bloom in the space industry of all sorts of different applications. I mean, there are tons of space actors. If you want to go and, and lose a bunch of money, there are a lot of new companies out there with new ideas in space that want your money to invest. And some of those will make a lot of money. A lot of them won't. But we need to begin to be aware that there are a variety of different activities and those different mm -hmm. activities need to be treated differently when we're thinking about law and regulation and when we're thinking about risk management in the cybersecurity realm. Now, that said, right, there are similarities, right? When you are operating in the orbital environment, you have to be aware of other actors. One of the great problems with space is that once it's up there, it doesn't just fall down when it stops working, right? It's not like an airplane. It keeps going. And that creates a risk for other people. So if the satellite blows up on orbit, all of those little pieces start flying around. They can run into other satellites. So also part of this whole risk management process is just this acknowledgement that the orbital environment is very different from other environments. And so if you have risks in, within your space asset, those could actually be risks for other operators. Yeah, but this idea that we need to begin to um, differentiate and understand the orbital environment in terms of what types of activities are going on there and how those activities interact with each other, I think is really important. And I think definitions are going to become more and more important. It's not like 20, 30 years ago when we knew what companies were doing in space. We knew what activities were up there. Right now, we have just a massive number of satellites. We have all sorts of business plans, all sorts of new technologies, and we are going to have to begin to grapple with and understand how these all interact. So to give uh, our audience appreciation for the process that, for example, a university has to go through if they launch their own CubeSat satellite, what are the kind of regulations they will be looking at? That they need to comply. So it's it's going to depend on the jurisdiction that you're in, right? Mm. Um, and I would point maybe to I think the Netherlands as well as Austria and possibly Belgium, um, very specifically have regulations on small sats or cube sats, which are primarily what these universities are doing because they're great educational platforms. But in general, this is very broad, very general. The university is probably going to have to get an authorization from whatever entity within that state authorizes space activities and that authorization will be for that satellite at the same time right that university is going to need to find a launch provider and that mm -hmm. launch service provider is then going to have to get an authorization for that launch and part of that authorization is going to be some sort of payload review to make sure that satellite or that payload is okay to go into space now generally when it comes back to cybersecurity, mm -hmm. there might not be any specific regulations that say okay okay, CubeSat, you need to do these things to be cyber secure. That's usually going to come back down to the organizational level for them to look at the risk and make a determination of it. And things that are going to impact that are, you know, is this a CubeSat that's going to be in a very low orbit without propulsion? Mm -hmm. Likely then, you know, if it's attacked and somebody takes command and control of it, the damage that that can do is very minimal, right? So there might not be a lot of risk management to be done. If it has propulsion and it's in an orbit that's near a strategic asset, a government military satellite of some sort, that's going to change the math on the risk management process a great deal. So the cybersecurity process still comes down to this organizational level and measuring risk. Mm. Yeah, I think uh, you, you painted this scenario, um, I believe, in one of your talks about 
when an attacker take over a command and control of a satellite in a geosynchronous orbit and collide with another satellite and who will be, or both satellite owners will be held liable. And you talk about the Space Liability Convention, which addresses such a situation. And I think what you pointed out was that the principles for assessing responsibility is, to me, it doesn't sound dissimilar to, for example, a non-space operator. So basically, whether the owner has demonstrated that they have put in place some sort of a proportionate risk-based mitigation measures. Yeah, I, I, the, the example of, of a net hacker taking over command and control and, and running the satellite into another, right? That's the worst possible scenario that we can imagine in space. And we've not seen any attacks even remotely approach that. But yeah, when it turned to this idea of liability, and this is at the international level, right? At the domestic level, there are all sorts of liability rules as well. But at the international level, we have the liability convention. And for damage that is caused by a space object to another space object, in space, we have a fault-based standard, right? We need to figure out who was at fault. And so there becomes this question of what constitutes fault. And if we're thinking about this in terms of cybersecurity, that comes back to sort of the same thing that we would look at on Earth. Were you acting as a reasonable and prudent operator? So it's sort of the same question of, you know, if there's been a data breach in my email provider um, and we end up in a dispute, my provider is going to show up with a bunch of evidence that shows we did all these things to try to avoid these types of incidents. We can't prevent every incident, right? You're never completely Mm -hmm. secure, but we've done all the things that we were supposed to do. We have been a reasonable and prudent operator. I would suggest that the same thing exists in space for cybersecurity, Mm -hmm. right? The question becomes whether or not you were doing the things that you should have done, right? Did you take an internationally recognized standard and develop an information security plan? Have you documented what you were doing? Can you show that you've done these things? Um, Whereas, you know, If you made this decision that you weren't going to encrypt the command and control link because it was really expensive to do it and you just didn't think the risk was there, likely now you haven't been functioning as a reasonable and prudent space operator and you might be at fault for that. Mm-hmm. So, so talking about laws and legislations or regulations at the international level, um, we keep hearing about you know huge divides on how cyberspace should be controlled, who has the authority, how that authority should be used. And I understand there have been you know efforts on the international front. For example, the UNGGE, which is a UN uh, group of government experts, right? Mm-hmm. Or now it's called the UN Open-Ended Working Group. So to what extent do these international instruments on cybersecurity apply in the space domain? So uh, I published a book in 2019, and one of the sort of the core claims of that book is is this problem that cyberspace presents for international law. The observation that I make is if we look at space, right? We got the Outer Space Treaty and um, aviation. We got the Chicago Convention in the 30s, right? Aviation just wasn't around that long. Um, Mm -hmm. Nuclear weapons. We got the NPT pretty quickly. We got the Test Ban Treaty pretty quickly. Um, International law has traditionally been pretty good at taking in new technologies. Now, I'm not saying that all of these agreements are perfect and that they've done a great job, but there has been an actual attempt to regulate at the international level. Cyberspace, on the other hand, the the technology was being developed in the 60s. We have the first major demonstrations of actual peer-to-peer networking in the 70s. That's right. Um, In the 90s, it just 
blows up in our face. And now we're in a world where everything is connected and everything is networked. And the international community has not really been able to respond to this, right? We have the Budapest Convention on Cybercrime, which is somewhat effective, but really is only about having states adopt domestic law with regards to cybercrime. We Mm -hmm. have this GGE and this OEWG at the, the UN level, but these aren't going to necessarily result in agreements, and they're bifurcated um, due to the fact that states do see very, have very, very different views on this. And one of my contentions is that cyberspace changes the way in the space in which international law and international relations unfold in such a fundamental way that international law itself has been very, very hampered at responding to this. Now, that said, I, I guess that was a long way of saying I don't think we're going to get new international law anytime soon that really does apply to cybersecurity or cyberspace. I just don't see that in the future for us. If it were adopted, I think it would depend on the terms of the treaty to what extent it applied in space. But I would imagine that states might go for very broad terms that would apply in space. Um, but that said, I just I don't see that right now we have a path two new agreements. And I think a lot of that is because states really like this ambiguity. Um, States are are really enjoying the fact (laughs) that there is this space that they can go and they can interfere with other states in. And then when that state says, hey, that was wrong, you shouldn't have done that, they'll go, "Ah, that wasn't us. Those IP addresses, they were spoofed. It's an incredible tool for states. And there just does not seem to be a rush to regulate that. Mm. I think you mentioned also that the space treaty was also quite ambiguous in its language as well. And this is just, again, a a general thing of of international law. States like to have freedom of action. Um, So while there might be sort of a broad agreement that, yes, we should have some law regarding this, often the law that actually comes out of that can be mushy and ambiguous and and it's weird at the international level you know at the at a national level when a law is ambiguous which happens we have courts that interpret it and courts that figure out what it means and courts that engage with that mm-hmm. at the international level that system really doesn't exist we get narratives that come from states about what they think the law means and we kind of see when there's this critical mass of states that all agree as to what this law means um and it differs from area to area within international law right telecommunications is actually very technically defined to a great deal But I I think for a lot of international law, um, Mm -hmm. we're very likely to get principles or statements of law that leave Mm -hmm. large leeway for states to reinterpret it. Mm. I guess uh, one reason is probably because uh, the space sector is such a a relatively sort of a new area compared to, say, aviation or the maritime sector. And there's still a lot of uncertainties as to how it will developed uh, politically or to be used for political ends? Yeah, I mean, I've, I've certainly made the argument before that one of the reasons why the Outer Space Treaty is, it's very soft, right? There's very few places in the Outer Space Treaty where it just says you, you cannot do this, right? I, there are only like two, two very prescriptive statements in the Outer Space Treaty. But I would argue that a lot of that is because states didn't know, right? The people that are negotiating the treaty didn't know 
what this was going to look like. They didn't exactly. know how the technology was going to develop. Um, and so that's why uh, we don't have these discussions about how certain technologies should be used or should be developed. It's because there was just a complete veil of ignorance concerning what the possibilities were and what might happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I argue that we still don't know because the outer space is really such a vast um, space, right? The possibilities is endless. It is, but we do see hardening, right? When it comes to telecommunications, right, that's that's handled by the International Telecommunication Union. And we we do have a good idea of what the, the geosynchronous telecom market looks like. We have a good understanding of how those frequencies are going to be used and what they're good for. And so we see sort of much more specific and harder regulation when it comes to those. But when we turn to something like, uh, like very large constellations, I would say mm. that it, it's still very unknown as That's to right. how these markets are going to develop, how the, exactly. the business plans are going to develop, mm. how the technology is going to develop. And so there is, I think, a lot of concern right now. It's obvious that something needs to be done as mm-hmm. there's this race to put hundreds of thousands of sat, small sats into lower right. orbit. At the same time, we don't know what to do. We don't know how to develop yep. wall with mm-hmm. regards to that. So in terms of the next steps at the international level, um, what are the next steps in terms of negotiations? Um? I, I think at the international level, we're only going to see open communication among states and discussions of very broad principles. I, I, I don't see sort of the divides on cybersecurity um, being tackled. And I mean, we have the traditional East-West divide on the, the US cybersecurity, but I would point out that even the European-American divide on, on things like data privacy is huge. Mm-hmm. It's going to be very difficult to get all of these states to agree to any sort of regulatory um, agreement. At the domestic level, at lower levels, I think we're fighting a battle of awareness and we're fighting a battle right. of information sharing. As I said earlier, I don't think that we need statutes that are going to get super specific about cybersecurity, right? We need mm-hmm. statutes that said, thou shalt be cybersecure, kind of at a broad level. But there needs to be more action at the lower levels, at the risk management level. So for instance, the, the National Institute of Standards and Technologies work on creating overlays and plans for using their risk management framework for space. That sort of work is very, very valuable because that's what the operators need. The operators need actionable plans with that's which right. they can do their mm-hmm. own plans. Right. Yes, I, I, I totally agree. Um, so, uh, Dr. Blount, I still have a lot of questions, uh, but um, I, I will have to wrap up this podcast. And so thank you very much uh, for your time to give us a glimpse into the developments at the national and also the international bodies of law looking at cybersecurity within the space sector and with the rapid acceleration of technologies enabling cheaper satellites. It's an area of growing importance for security and cybersecurity professionals. So thank you very much for your time today. Thanks so much for having me. I really enjoyed it.